Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it Since its creation in 1985, one of the most important conservation tools in the United States has been the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. These CRP acres are working to produce cleaner waters, healthier soils, they're stabilizing rural producers' incomes on the toughest of farm acres, they're helping to sequester carbon and most importantly, and nearest and dearest to our hearts at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, CRP acres are creating high-quality wildlife habitat, most specifically pheasants and quail, prairie grouse, but also songbirds, monarch butterflies, honeybees, waterfowl, big bucks, longbeards, and they're even creating acres for all of us to access as public land hunters and we'll talk a little bit about how that happens as well while there are crp continuous practices open year-round to landowners right now through april 7th is a unique opportunity it happens about once a year for a crp general sign up and again that's going on right now through april 7th and that is the focus of this particular episode of On the Wing Podcast, the CRP general sign-up. It's the bread and butter tool for our habitat mission. And uh, we're going to dive deep into the Conservation Reserve Program with a big array of guests, experts in our wildlife habitat mission, biologists from across the country, from North Dakota to Nebraska to Tennessee and Minnesota, I've got experts lined up to talk about the Conservation Reserve Program. Now let me introduce those guests. Making her return visit, you're kind of a once-a-month visitor to On The Wing podcast now, Rachel. Uh, Rachel Bush from North Dakota. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself uh, if folks haven't caught up uh, last couple of episodes you've been on, Rachel. Yeah, no problem, Bob. And I'll say as long as there's snow on the ground, I'm happy to help out. Um, like Bob said, my name's Rachel. I'm the conservation programs manager for private lands for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, I cover our organizational footprint, but I call Bismarck, North Dakota home. And I guess how that relates to CRP in this particular podcast, being the private lands program manager, talking about CRP, which is hands down the most successful habitat machine we have out there. So glad to be back bob right on and for folks that are wondering how much snow is on the ground in bismarck right now well we got another six and a half seven inches yesterday so i think our total's up to 80 some you know wow. record-breaking levels yeah it's that's it's not been all a tough... on the ground right now but <laughs> some of it's melted so right. but it's been a tough winter across the northern tier of, of pheasant range states um, where it's 70 degrees and sunny and no snow on the ground, we're going to go to uh, Tennessee 
Um, also a returning guest on the podcast, Brittany Viers, our Tennessee State Coordinator. Brittany, give uh, give folks your background and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do for the organization. Sure. Thanks, Bob. Um, so I started with Quail Forever about 10 years ago as a Farmville biologist. Uh, I was the first one in Tennessee and the first one in the Southeast. Um, and CRP was my main program that I implemented and assisted landowners with. And now I'm the state coordinator for Tennessee and I am the state technical lead for CRP. Um, so I still get to work with the program at the county level, but mostly what I'm doing now is making sure that um, our partner staff and all the NRCS folks that we work with have the information that they need um, to assist landowners with CRP. Outstanding. We'll we'll talk with you in a little bit about how CRP uh, does indeed help create habitat for bobwhite quail too. So we'll come back to that. Um, my my brother from another mother, one of my best buddies in the organization, Andy Hauser. You probably haven't been introduced that way before, but <laughs> it is your inaugural on the wing podcast debut andy hauser from nebraska good to have you on bud for folks that uh folks that don't know you andy give us a little bit uh background on where you live and what you do for the organization yeah so i live in curtis nebraska uh the very southwest corner um i'm a senior coordinating biologist uh, for the for the region uh started as a farm bill biologist out of mccook uh, worked there for six or seven years, and now I uh, I administer the Nebraska Bergen pheasant plan for the the Southwest 14 counties. So uh, yeah, we work work regularly with CRP every day. Uh, work on a you know regional level, working with FSA, uh, Nebraska Game and Parks, and uh, you know working through the CRP program and and uh, and our producers. And I, in the intro, I talked about uh, CRP also being. Um, the foundation for public land hunters for access programs. And we'll talk, we'll circle back to Andy to talk specifically about how this private lands program creates opportunities for public lands hunters. So we'll, we'll come back to Andy specifically about that topic. Uh, rounding out our guests for this particular episode focused on the Conservation Reserve Program, newcomer to the podcast, Nate Four. Uh, joins us from a southern Minnesota. Nate, thanks very much for making time today. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. Hello, my name is Nate Four, and I am a farm bill biologist with Pheasants Forever here in southwest Minnesota. Been at this job a couple of years now, but prior to joining the Bird Club, I worked a few years for the Wisconsin DNR doing hands-on habitat management for public lands. And now I use that technical experience to directly help landowners who are interested in establishing or managing wildlife habitat on their private land. And we use a variety of state and federal programs to accomplish those projects, but I would say the vast majority of that work is done through CRP. Cool. So for listeners, hopefully you get a sense of kind of the, the depth and breadth of the conversation ahead of us. We've got um, folks 
representing the heart of pheasant country from North Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, but then also we've got uh, quail country represented. We've got folks that have been dealing with CRP for 20 years and folks that are uh, much newer to the program. People that work with landowners, people that work with state agencies. So the goal for, for this particular conversation is to talk about the Conservation Reserve Program from its fundamental um, starting point for people that maybe have heard of the, the acronym um, and then give a little bit deeper depth to that understanding. But then also for landowners that maybe have considered CRP, passed up on it historically, and um, get folks to take another look at it right now during this unique window of time where there's a general sign-up. So um, that's the goal today, talk CRP because there is a general sign-up happening now through April 7th. And it really only happens once a year that this window of opportunity opens up for this particular general sign-up. So, um, Rachel, let's start. A lot of bird hunters and a lot of the listener audience comes to this podcast hoping to learn about the best shotgun to use and should they get a pointer or, or a retriever or a flusher, a lab or a short hair. Um, they've heard of CRP. They know what it looks like in the fall, but maybe they don't understand an overview from a bird hunter's perspective. So that's where I want you to start. Talk about CRP for somebody that lives and breathes bird hunting, but maybe doesn't own property or really know why this is so important. Sure thing. I guess looking at it from the, if we're going to look at the 30,000 foot level of CRP, um, it's a program administered by USDA's Farm Service Agency. Um, and it's an agreement with private landowners, a 10 or 15 year agreement with private landowners. Um, there are too many acronyms to go through on all the different opportunities, you know, that fall within that CRP umbrella. You know, that would just weigh it down. But just know there's a lot of um, a lot of different program opportunities. And so for that 10 or 15 year agreement, landowners are going to receive a payment to kind of convert that cropland to some sort of perennial cover or, you know, mostly perennial cover. Um, and so what that means for a bird hunter is that's habitat. I mean, I mentioned, I think in the intro that CRP is the most successful private lands program we have to put wildlife habitat on the ground. And so, you know, understanding a little bit of the basics behind that program when you're out there walking those fields in the fall, understanding the policies um, that support a strong CRP program, I think are important for bird hunters. But that's the 30,000 foot view, 10 to 15 mm -hmm. agreements, perennial cover. Yeah, and when you think about states like, let's say, say Kansas, for instance, and I believe Kansas ranks 48th in the country in terms of the amount of public land available. It's almost entirely private land. So CRP is the play, and I think this is a generalized statement that's pretty true. Most places, CRP is where most of the birds are born. And especially in states that don't have a ton of public access, they're born here. And whether you hunt on private land or you might hunt on public, birds are born on private land and then they spill over into a lot of these pu uh, public spots that we, we chase them in the fall. Is that an accurate statement, Rachel? 
I would think definitely. I mean, especially if you take, you know, lands east of the, the Rocky Mountains, primarily mm. private ownership, you know, and also that's the core of pheasant and quail range if we look at it. And so, yeah, we really can't have an impact, I don't think, on these populations unless we're doing habitat on private lands. Yeah, right on. Um, all right, Brittany, let's put on the landowner's hat then and, and approach CRP. You work with landowners in your role with Tennessee and have the entire decade you've worked with the organization talking with landowners about conservation programs. When approaching a landowner or when a landowner is approaching conservation, the Conservation Reserve Program, talk to us about what that program means to them and what they look at when it comes to CRP. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this dynamic or group of folks are primarily who we work with in the Mid-South and, and in Tennessee. Um, hopefully one day we can increase uh, quail hunting much more than what it is right now and have more landowners that are coming through the door that are also quail hunters. Um, that's definitely a goal. But I'll say mostly who we are working with are farmers and uh, livestock producers. And so CRP can be very desirable to those folks because it's um, financial security for that 10 to 15 year period. Um, and especially when you're talking about marginal lands that may be very wet or very dry. And so uh, how much profit they could make from continuing to farm them is not very good. And so CRP is a, a stable way for them to, um, you know, recoup uh, some of their financial losses uh, from farming or uh, grazing. There's also, in some cases, um, the maintenance issue. It's CRP can be a lot less maintenance, especially if like folks think that they have to keep um, their fallow areas manicured when they could just enroll it into a buffer or into um, a small CRP contract. Um, and then there's also the aesthetic value of it. Um, we have a lot of contracts in Tennessee where folks want to see a lot of wildflowers and native grasses, which is a win-win for Bob Whites. So uh, we have gotten and acquired a lot of contracts just because of, you know, the aesthetic value of CRP. Mm -hmm. So you talked about kind of um, those tough to farm acres, environmentally sensitive acres, the drought acres, the wet acres. So I always think about CRP as... You know, I boil it down into a slogan, farm the best, conserve the rest. It, it is those acres that it's the dice roll acres, right? Like landowner looks at their plans like, okay, you know, this, this field is going to be great. You know, I'm going to get terrific yields out of that every year, but there's always that, that low spot or it's the, along the Creek where, or the hillside where it's like in, when the moisture is perfect going to pull off a nice yield but you know it, it's a dice roll because right. some of those years those acres are just going to be money sucks because the the amount of gas seed fertilizer the inputs are just not going to be profitable on those acres where crp like you say it's it's sort of a um 
it balances those out and creates an income on the the dice rolls. So it right. prevents prevents sort of just throwing money at something that's not going to be really productive. Um, like what seven out of ten years is that a good way of assessing it? Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. It's it's financial stability for that ten mm. to fifteen year period. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So Andy, I've, I've mentioned it a couple times. This is a general sign up versus the alternative. Talk to us about like the overall scope of CRP general versus continuous. Like why why is now a unique time? <clears throat> so general signups are. Uh... A great time you know we have this this open enrollment you know we can come in and enlist and enroll you know a large amount of acres um you know for the west this is a lot of times our our larger fields that we get enrolled into the program um and it's just a a great time that to offer you know some of these into one into one enrollment uh so right now our you know our offices are are working through re-enrollments um, working on new enrollments, you know, and, and it's kind of, uh, you know, all hands on deck for, for CRP. So uh, switching the conversation back to Rachel here for a minute, you think about, you know, I've, I've thrown this statistic out on previous podcasts. We, we have the second most biologists employed by our organization next to only the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and the vast majority of those biologists are like Andy, like Nate, who work through USDA grants and sit in USDA offices to meet with landowners. And, you know, that we, we put a lot of attention into this five-week time frame when CRP <laughs> general sign-up is happening. But that's not the only thing that a landowner can talk to our biologists about when they sit down late. So I want to focus on a couple things here. So landowners that are interested, they should go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org slash CRP. And that will take you to a map on our websites, which is a land uh, farm bill biologist locator map. And you can see the closest biologists that are, um, to you, or maybe you live in Minnesota and you own property in North Dakota and you want to visit with a, a biologist in one of those locations based on where you live or where your property is, that, that map will show you where to go. But the, sign, the general sign-up is only one element of the things you can talk to a biologist about, correct, Rachel? Yeah, that's correct. I think, you know, we're using this general sign up in this period between, you know, now and April 7th to talk about it and to generate interest in the general sign up. But, you know, if you visit with one of our biologists, you know, you may find out that there's a continuous practice or something that works better for your property uh, that you might not have known had you not had that conversation. You know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned in this podcast yet is we're talking about the general signup and the general signup is one of the few CRP practices where it's actually competitive hmm. to get your offer accepted. And so if you are interested in the general signup, you know, working with one of our biologists across the country can help you increase your, what, what they call your EBI score. And the higher the score you have, the higher likelihood you have of your offer being accepted. 
And so our biologists know the ins and outs of what's going to, you know, what's going to help you score higher. And usually that's associated with the type of cover you want to put on there. Um, but whether you're working with CRP or whether you work on another farm bill program or maybe a partner program with one of our biologists, you know, I think one of the things that you're going to get out of that is you're going to get a higher quality wildlife habitat, you know, than you would if you work with someone that doesn't have that wildlife background or doesn't have that passion for wildlife and habitat. So those are just a few of the reasons yeah, we, can come up, we can come up with like 298 more. Right? I know <laughs> I, I, this is, I, you know, I, I think about our conversation and, you know, I plan out this discussion and it is such a complex topic to approach in a podcast. And, and you, you mentioned, okay, general sign up is competitive versus continuous. That's not and for somebody that's like, continuous versus general what are we talking about and then you, you know it's so easy to go down the acronym soup the you know ebi um so i want to break down some of this because it, it 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 is so it's such an important tool for any bird it doesn't matter at any american because it's the <laughs> single best tool we have cleaning our waters protecting soil and yeah, all of us who are, love bird hunting, it's creating the places that we love pheasants, we love quail, prairie grouse, big bucks, waterfall. It's it's the cat's ass. I mean, it is the <laughs> right. It's it is the best thing going, but it's so darn complicated. So I'm gonna back up a second. General CRP tends to be bigger blocks of habitat. Is that an accurate statement? And why, why is that? Yes, I would say historically, you know, you see a lot more whole field enrollments with general CRP. Um, it's based on erodibility and that score and you're not limited. So mm -hmm. a lot of times, and I think it might be easier to explain it from the continuous side, continuous CRP practices are focused on some resource concern. Um, so, you you know, like up here in North Dakota, potholes, wetlands are the resource that we want to protect. And so continuous practices need a wetland to qualify the adjacent mm -hmm. upland. So you're limited by ratios in that way. So in that case, you're really focusing on just that environmentally sensitive area through continuous, whereas general, you don't have to have that specific environmentally sensitive area to enroll it. So you can enroll larger blocks of habitat and or larger blocks of fields and stuff like that. that that's a really good point because it is it does it is a little easier to approach from continuous because continuous is where all the as you mentioned the kind of the results driven goals reside in a program so bob white buffers cp33 or upland buffers cp33 um you know you got the pollinators is cp42 and, and then you got safe practices, CP38s, right? It, it got all my acronym numbers correct. Okay. So safe practice, states get to pick like what they want to try to produce a result for. So it might be in um, a quail result for enrollment in Georgia. In Minnesota, it's a pheasant result. In um, I think in Wyoming, they try to produce a sage grouse result. Um, so they have state um, specific 
program under continuous to generate a result. Same thing with water quality, same like you mentioned in North Dakota, wetlands, uh, pollinators. Um, so that isn't necessarily competitive one-on-one. It's like, does a continuous program and a piece of property, does enrolling it into that specific practice generate the result environmental response that USDA is after? If it does, then you would qualify to get enrolled in continuous. The general practice is like, it's, it's all these landowners can apply for a specific allotment of available acres in money, and they're competing against each other for acceptance based on how much a landowner is willing to do on the particular property and what they're willing to accept as a payment for that property based on, as you mentioned, an EBI, an environmental <laughs> benefits index, correct? So correct. when you go to a farm bill biologist to talk about the general sign up, you really go into a coach who is trying to help you score better on your ACT. Sorry for the other <laughs> acronym, but everybody knows the ACT, right? You have to take the ACT to get into college, or at least you used to. So it's basically going to a landowner coach, how do I get a better EBI score to get a better payment and, and beat out somebody else? Is that, I know I'm simplifying things, but is that accurate, Rachel, as to kind of the lay of the land? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd say our staff are always going to, you know, they're landowner led. So it's not like we're coaching them into something they wouldn't want, um, but we're def definitely there to offer advice. So let's just say they were willing to plant a grass mixture that included introduced species. So we already know they're willing to plant new grass onto cropland. But if our staff can advise them and say, hey, if you planted this more diverse mix of native species, you'd get more points on your mm. EBI and thus increase your chances. So it's those kind of tips and tricks. And then same thing, you know, that you can get really into the details of the EBI, but yeah, we're, we're helping them, you know, at least score higher in the areas that they're interested in doing in the first place. So one of the things that you hear frequently and you read in the news <clears throat> about CRP, it's, boy, it's not comp as competitive as it once was. And you hear the term soil rental rates. Can you explain the soil rental rate component and why it is still important for a landowner to explore during this window of time, um, the CRP general sign-up, Rachel? Well, there's always, you know, there's, unfortunately, there's statutory caps on soil rental rates within CRP. And so for general, that is like an 85% proration. So already, you know, landowners are going and they're at a 15% disadvantage. And that's always compared to, you know, it has, in most cases, the land you're enrolling into CRP is cropland. It has to have crop history. So I think it's safe to assume that, you know, before they enroll into CRP, it's being cropped. And whether they're the landowner or the operator, there could be cash rent being paid on that land. And so we always, you know, the idea is that soil rental rates stay at least up there with current cash rent rates. 
Now, I think there's a little bit of lag time with that, um, but that, you know, that 85% proration really knocked us back a little bit. They've made some changes and included a couple additional like incentives to help um, compensate for that, but it's still there. So that does limit, um, you know, landowners. And I think that's one of the things, you know, that we have to consider when people are signing up. But again, I think it's good to talk to a biologist because like I said, you know, you might walk in the door thinking you were going to sign up for general CRP and find out that, hey, maybe you actually qualify for this continuous practice, which the statutory cap on that is not as low or as high, I guess. Um, So continuous practices usually pay a higher rental rate and offer, I guess, better incentives. Um, But then also, you know, we have to give our field staff props for knowing all the other programs that are out there. So, you know, you can enroll in CRP, but there might be an incentive through your local Pheasants Forever chapter or through your state PF or QF. Um, There might be incentives offered by state agencies that, you know, can go on top of what your CRP payment is that might, you know, put it over the top for being profitable. So, and you wouldn't know any of that if you didn't talk to one of our team members. Right. One of the core takeaways, I think, is that you may go in thinking one thing and you come out with like, 14 different solutions, (laughs) right? I mean, in in reality, you might go in thinking, well, I'm going to see if I can enroll these 40 acres in general CRP, and you might get some number smaller than that in general, three different continuous practices, and then maybe something state-specific. And your goals might be achieved better, and you might be more profitable than you ever thought. You just don't know until you you take the time to sit down and kind of explore all the options. Right. And it can be, you know, all these options can be intimidating, especially if mm-hmm. a landowner's never been through the process. But that's the another benefit of working with someone from PF or QF is they're there to help guide you through that whole process, not yeah. just give you a bunch of information and leave you alone. <laughs> right on. Um, Nate, thanks for being patient, buddy. <laughs> you wait, waiting through. Uh, you, you probably out of all the folks on the call, you know, you're, you probably are talking with landowners most specifically about CRP practices and this general sign-up. What are the frequently asked questions that you're getting that we should elevate for this podcast that, that you're hearing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so one of the questions I get a lot from landowners that are enrolled in CRP is they will ask me, why do you hate trees? And I don't hate trees, but because a lot of the conservation practices that we use in CRP are intended to restore grasslands or wetlands, the conservation practice standards require us to manage against tree growth. For example, Eastern red cedar, Eastern cottonwood, These tree species are commonly popping up in our CRP fields. And if left unintended, they will grow very quickly, spread very aggressively. And what was supposed to be a grassland or a wetland is now a young forest. Um, Especially that can happen very quickly, you know, in the length of a CRP contract, 10 to 15 years. So Um, We got to stay on top of the trees, and um, I know trees and shrubs can be excellent 
winter cover for wildlife, specifically pheasants. But we just have to remember that wildlife habitat isn't the sole purpose of CRP. The program is also designed to address a lot of other resource concerns, as we mentioned, soil health, water quality, maybe a lack of pollinator habitat. So all these things are thought of um, when we are kind of having this more strict tree control policy than I think uh, what most landowners would prefer. But there is good news when it comes to trees and CRP, and this is where I'll hype the general sign up. There are CRP practices that have the purpose of growing trees. These include our uh, field windbreaks and our shelter belts. And these conservation practices can actually be designed to be way more beneficial to wildlife as either a food resource or winter cover than just letting a beautiful prairie get covered up with cottonwood trees. So if you are a landowner that is interested in CRP and potentially growing trees, the general CRP signup is where you'll want to start because these practices, at least the majority of them, are only available in the general signup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to recognize in the absence of fire on the landscape, um, trees can take over and change the ecology of what was supposed to be a prairie or a grassland, right? Which all of a sudden you have deer and turkey habitat, not pheasant and quail habitat anymore, which is what we have seen in the last generation, the change in the landscape to, um, you know, loss of grasslands. It's the fastest disappearing ecosystem in the country, and that's because of tree encroachment and you know we just got done talking predators on our last podcast you know that's the other thing about these volunteer trees that pop into the grasslands if you want to mitigate the impact of raptors don't have trees in your grasslands right like because that they become predator perches and they're going to just um use those predator perches to take out the birds that you really love on the landscape in terms of the pheasants and the quail and the prairie grouse so as as nate mentioned the tree component can be a very specific way of implementing them in, in the form of shelter belts um, as opposed to letting them um, sort of encroach upon the grasslands that you're really trying to foster through CRP. It, it, that an accurate overview of what you, you articulated, Nate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, all the conservation practices that we have in CRP have a specific focus. So um, even though there's a lot of ways that we can incorporate wildlife habitat on the landscape, we still have to adhere to, you know, the the main goal of what you're signing up um, mm -hmm. CRP to do. Mm -hmm. Speaking of what you might be signing up CRP to do, and I teased this early in the, the show, um, Andy, I mentioned, okay, CRP is a private lands conservation program, but it is the foundation for lots, tens of thousands, millions 
of public access acres around the country, which you specifically work on in the state of Nebraska. Explain my statement there, how a private lands program can create public access. Oh, absolutely. You know, our, uh, our walking program in Nebraska is, is by far our bread and butter of uh, our hunting opportunities. You know, so essentially these, these folks that are enrolling into CRP or, or uh, have ground that might be suitable for, for any type of hunting, um, get the chance to voluntarily, you know, enroll their private owned land into a walk-in hunting or a fishing here in Nebraska anyway, uh, where they're essentially going to get a, a annual uh, per acre rental rate to essentially let, you know, the general public, anybody walk in and, and uh, take, you know, take advantage of, of the, of the resources there, you know, to be able to go in and go hunting and uh, fishing and yeah, it's just a, a great program. You know, lots of states have very successful um, walk-in programs and uh, I, I just love, love it in every, every state I've ever been. I'm guessing, Bob, you probably, probably hit me on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. You, you definitely manage one of the best in the country in Nebraska's open fields and waters, but it is not unique in that the foundation of most walk-in programs most start with the conservation reserve program because it's you know uh, millions of acres that are enrolled and produce really high quality wildlife habitat and for landowners that want to get an extra payment so this was conceived i think two farm bills ago under the title of open fields which was a great name and didn't require an acronym, but it has an acronym now. <laughs> you maybe have heard VPA HIP, Voluntary Public Access Habitat Incentives. I think it's the I is incentives, right? Habitat Incentives Program. Yep. VPA HIP, which is a layer of the farm bill that adds a payment that states can augment to open up private lands for public access. So plots in North Dakota, the walk-in program in South Dakota, walk-in access, WIA in Minnesota, OLAP in Oklahoma. I mean, you there's more acronyms you can shake a stick at, but they're all based on the first, the starting acronym, which is CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program. So if you like public access built on private lands, CRP, most of these programs wouldn't even have an existence without the Conservation Reserve Program to start it off. So that's that's an important component, again, from the hunter's perspective, but from a landowner's perspective, it does open you up for an additional payment to get on your private land that you've enrolled in CRP in many states. Um, in Nebraska is just one example of that. Uh, turning it over to quail for a moment, Brittany. We, for most of the country, CRP and pheasants are like peanut butter and jelly. You know, it's it's <laughs> you know peas and carrots for another analogy, right? Like, I mean, they they go hand in hand, and. But but CRP, particularly across the Mid-South and Great Plains, has also been extraordinarily beneficial to bobwhite quail, too, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. 
so tell us a little bit about how some of the the ways that CRP has worked for for Bob White Quail. So when I think about um, what quail habitat used to look like across the mid south and southeast, um, you know it's kind of like what a lot of folks talk about that grew up quail hunting. Um, the farms were a lot smaller. They were patchy. Um, there were still fence rows. There were still the, the weedy fallow places. Um, and so, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago when Bob Whites were thriving across the Southeast, um, CRP is the program that can, uh, has a potential to get us back to that situation and, mm. you know, can basically not necessarily make um, large row crop fields smaller, but we have the ability to utilize buffer practices. And, and that doesn't necessarily have to just be a buffer. It could be a fallow area. You know, we work with a lot of producers that may enroll five or 10 acres uh, of one of their crop fields because they can't get their equipment back in there. Um, or, you know, again, it's not producing high enough crop yields. So in turn, you know, we have the ability to put back what was lost, what has been lost for, for quail habitat. Um, some of the other beneficial things for quail that CRP provide are the required maintenance activities. The fact that there, um, has to be methods of disturbance to keep their habitat in the early successional stage, which is so important. Um, Nate was talking about trees and how they can be problematic. And uh, that's certainly something that we all experience that um, who work on CRP. Um, but, you know, you touched on the continuous CRP practices and another benefit to Bob Whites are how many options that landowners and producers have. They could mm -hmm. do anything from enrolling into a prairie strip to a 38, CP38 safe program. Uh, and I'll mention that one because in Tennessee, our safe program requires a certain percentage of woody cover or escape cover for Bob Whites. Uh, you, you know, that's so instrumental in trying to restore their habitat. The fact that we can actually pay landowners to plant shrubs or establish brush piles or encourage them to plant back covey headquarters um, has helped quail in the Mid-South um, not completely get wiped off the map, so to speak. I mean, we all have uh, maintenance struggles with CRP and landowners that, you know, may or may not do enough. Um, but in general and as a whole, CRP has helped Bob White's tremendously in the mm. Southeast. CRP general sign up, um, the, the expiring contracts. So right now, uh, in September every year, Landowners enrolled in those 10 to 15 year contracts, that's when they expire. So this general sign up, um, part of the acres we're trying to capture people that 
have those expirations coming up in September to get them re-enrolled so they, they don't miss that opportunity to, to keep some of those environmentally sensitive acres in the program. Um, there's a lot of acres coming up in September for expiration, aren't there? There are almost 2 million. Wow. So any, any areas of the country that you point to is, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of acres of opportunity to restore some habitat here. Yeah. So if we think about, you know, I think going, looking back to, um, I pulled some historical numbers. So before we get to where we are this coming September, I think if you look at between 2020 and 2022, we had 12.4 million acres set to expire in CRP. I think within those years, though, between re-enrollments and new acres, we enrolled more acres than were expired. So that's a historical look. Um, right now, you know, looking forward, so September 30th, it's about 1.9, so almost 2 million acres set to expire nationwide. Some of the biggest states with expirations, and again, I didn't I didn't peel apart whether these are general or continuous. It's just CRP. So Texas is a big one. Um, but I think, you know, Texas overall is just a big CRP state to begin with. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have just under 300,000 acres expiring in September. Um, and then we look, which we look far west from the guest on this podcast. We look at actually Washington, um, which for me kind of came as a surprise because that's just not a geography I'm familiar with. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about eastern Washington, they have just under, you know, just under 200,000 acres expiring. Um, other top states for expiring acres this year are going to be Colorado and Kansas. So, again, those are those are important states for for birds to think about. Well, North Dakota, it you know, one and if I'm looking at the accurate numbers, one point one million right now and. A decade ago, during, say, the high point of pheasant numbers, that was three times that much. Wasn't it three million? Yeah. 2007 was our top year. We had just under 3.4 million acres. Yeah. And so, we have a lot of pheasants. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you can, you can, it, there, if you look at a chart of when CRP acres are high and bird numbers are high, they track each other like mirror images, don't they? They do. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm not, North Dakota is always going to have birds, but our level, you know, in any state, I'd say, you know, when CRP levels are higher, just that base population, that, that bottom of your population, you know, for pheasant numbers, I think it's just going to be higher when, as your CRP acres drop, you know, you're probably not going to lose birds across, you know, especially in some of the core states, you're not going to lose the population, but that base mm -hmm. population level that we kind of roll at is just going to be lower than what we've historically had. So in that decade that things have changed so dramatically, well, it's a little more than that decade, 15 years in North Dakota. What's changed in North Dakota that that's had such a massive change? I think we've seen um, a change in the crops grown. You know, it used to be when I first moved out to North Dakota, um, I moved to, you know, I was living in Jamestown, so east central part of the state, and there was a lot of crop diversity. You saw flax and sunflower, a lot of small grains, corn and soybean. Um, you go to that same area now, and it's a lot of just corn and soybeans. So you've lost that crop diversity. Um, you know, if we look at North Dakota in the southwest part of the state, which, every, you know, we always talk about that being the stronghold, um, it was historically dominated by small grains, which 
you know, are good, you know, pheasants can thrive in a small grain situation, but we're seeing more and more corn and soybeans creep into even that part of the state. So a lot more, um, a lot less diversity in our agriculture, I think, um, has done it larger farm equipment. So you're, you know, mm. people aren't willing to enroll some of these field margins that may not do so well just because of the encumbrances that come with large equipment. Um, but that that's just some of my observations. Mm -hmm. in, in, Andy, I see you nodding your head. It, it, similar things change in Nebraska. I'm looking at statistics for Nebraska, 1.8 million acres in Nebraska, which pretty strong numbers still. Um, similar changes to the landscape in the state of Nebraska as Rachel articulated the last 15 years? Absolutely. Yeah, the farther, you know, definitely the farther you go east, uh, you see that small grain um, kind of circulate out of their cropping systems. And, uh, you know, the, the less CRP we find on the landscape in general, especially in larger tracks. Uh, so, yeah, we, we see that that same same trend um, for sure. Uh, we've had a nice little pickup, you know, of of uh, CRP, you know, being a little more flexible. So some of our farmers and ranchers were, have really looked at, you know, the ability to hay and graze them uh, now, which, you know, some upland bird hunters might frown upon. But, you know, as far as putting cover on the landscape, you know, some of these guys have really looked at this as a as a management tool for them. You know, it's it's their drought management plan and rolling CRP to uh, get through, you know, not having to reduce their herd size in a year like the last two years we've had in Nebraska. So, you know, that, uh, you know, that that's a, it's something that I think is, has been overlooked the last few while, a while, and uh, it's going to really give us an opportunity here in the future. Yeah, that's really worth underscoring because CRP has to be a viable option for the landowner and part of it being a viable option is that that emergency haying and grazing particularly the grazing component um allows those producers to keep cattle in their operation during a time of a drought and grazing has a hell of a lot of wildlife benefits too doesn't it i mean as a guy who i know owns cattle himself <laughs> uh, absolutely you know we uh you know we're you know the drought's been tough uh there's a lot of our our crp in the south that in the southwest here you know that's that that looks rough uh but you know when you get those cattle in there they they uh, create bare ground create broadleaf plants you know we get broadleaf some bare ground we get good brood cover uh so you know it's all not only all all doom and gloom when we we start talking about that you know, I think we're really looking forward to, to seeing the early successional habitat that we get the next few years uh, from mm -hmm. some of these. And yeah, I mean, as a as a third generation family rancher, we we totally got through this past drought or hopefully we're getting through it uh, by by using some of that uh, grazing some CRP. And, you know, it, it took pressure off of our other pastures uh, that that we pretty well call prairie chicken home, you know, so mm -hmm. um so yeah, it definitely is a really good program when when folks start thinking that way too. So, am I a Pollyanna? Is the sky always blue in my world if I say, you know, yeah, you come through a drought, but because of the the management of that habitat through haying and grazing, when moisture returns, and the kind of the native 
um, plant species, the forbs and the grasses respond, you could have a wildlife bonanza if weather cooperates in the next couple of years because it, you've actually, it, CRP unmanaged can become a monoculture. And with haying and grazing, particularly grazing again, um, it can infuse some new regenerative growth to that habitat. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope I hope we get enough moisture to to see that response. <laughs> We're gonna have some of mine. We're gonna have some of mine. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. some snow. All right, uh, Nate. It, for landowners that have explored CRP before, and they're like, I I'm just I'm hesitant to go back and sit down in a USDA office or sit down with a pheasants forever, quail forever, farm bill biologist convince them to take a fresh look at the program why would they why is a a half hour of their time an hour of their time to come visit you or a person like you worth their time sure well i think we've done a great job so far during this conversation is kind of defining crp as a big old program and it can be complex but some of those complexities can actually be a good thing. Um, so even if a landowner has explored CRP in the past and it wasn't good fit at the time, I would encourage them to go back to their USDA office because there could be a new conservation practice that was created or an existing practice that was slightly modified to the point where now they have more options that are better fits for their situation. Hmm. Another thing that, so I could be completely off my rocker and if that's true, we'll just edit it out. But um, so I think about a landowner talking with the C, uh, with a biologist and part of it is what a biologist or a person in a USDA service center, what appeals to them about the program. So if I'm going to go buy a vehicle at Ford, a Ford dealership, you know, the salesperson might really gravitate towards, you know, the Ford Escape. So they end up selling a lot of Ford Escapes because that's the vehicle they like rather than the, the Explorer, right? I get the sense that some of that is true with CRP too. You meet a biologist and maybe that that person has changed since five years ago when you last went in. Maybe the program's changed a little bit too. But if you meet with somebody different, you might uh, uncover kind of a new opportunity that maybe didn't exist or maybe wasn't a sweet spot of the person you talked with before. Is that a, I know I went a long ways, Nate, but is my car selling analogies um, have any relevance to CRP? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great comparison because, yeah, I mean, we, we all have our own interests and we all um, focus on different aspects of the program and maybe we do have a bias towards those and unconsciously sell those, if you will, a little bit more yeah. than the other ones. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the fact is CRP is a big program and it's hard to consider 
all of the options that might be available to a landowner in one 20 minute meeting, you know? Right. So that's why I think the general CRP signup is a good um, place to start the conversation. And it might be more than one meeting uh, for a landowner before they find the perfect program for their, their land. Right on. Um, I'm going to go around the horn for closing thoughts. We're, we'll start with, with Brittany. I'll let you gather your thoughts. I will remind listeners, if you own property anywhere in the country, anywhere in the country, the CRP has acres enrolled. I'm looking at the stats now. There's There are CRP acres in Rhode Island. So if you're listening and you want to go into the USDA Service Center in Rhode Island and talk about CRP, um, there is relevant programs for you all over the country. Go to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org slash CRP. Simple as that. It'll take you to our map where you can type in your zip code and it'll pull up the closest Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever biologist to your location. Or you can simply go to the USDA website Go to their USDA Service Center map and find your local USDA Service Center to talk to a biologist as well. This current general sign-up, which is a competitive process, ends on April 7th. So you have to get your offer in by April 7th to um, um, make this an option for you. But that's just the start of the conversation. There's lots of other conservation programs, whether they're continuous or state-specific, or even some of those access opportunities that Andy mentioned um, that you can learn about by just simply going to visit a biologist completely free. Um, and who knows what you'll learn about your property and what might be an option for, we all, you know, every landowner likes to see wildlife, prairie flowers, clean water coming out of their, their land. And this is a way to to reinvigorate that conversation. Uh, closing thoughts will go around the horn. We'll start in Tennessee with Brittany. What's your closing thought, Brittany? Well, I just wanted to mention that we have six biologists, including myself in Tennessee, that primarily focus on CRP. So I'll just reiterate what you just shared, Bob. I just encourage anyone to come in to our local um USDA offices and inquire about assistance. Um, we, we love CRP and we love to work on it and, and enjoy helping landowners. Uh, there are also two in Kentucky who primarily work on CRP. Uh, so I want to mention that too, and several others in the other Southeastern states that work mm -hmm. on CRP. Um, and I'll also share that, and I, I won't speak for other states, but in Tennessee specifically, um, we've done a really good job of trying to make sure that not only are we working on the, you know, right or most beneficial practice for a landowner or producer, but also that we are um, taking into consideration the soil types and also the native vegetation for the area. So we have, we're, pretty progressive state. We have a lot of flexibility when it comes to seed mixes and even natural regeneration as an option for some of our CRP practices. So, um, and, you know, on the previous podcast, we had Dwayne Estes with the Southeastern Grasslands Institute 
as, as our guest. And, um, so I've learned a whole lot from him and we just try to create, uh, seed mixes to put back what's been lost. And I think we do a really good job of that. And I just wanted to, to mention that, that we certainly take in the consideration what the surrounding, um, circumstances are in mm-hmm. um, scenarios. Yeah, we mentioned so. mentioned it a little bit on this episode. You tied it back to that, that uh, podcast with the Grass Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. And I do think about pollinator and pollinator plots. And the, there's so much interest in pollinators around the country. CRP is like pollinator plots on steroids from an opportunity perspective. If you want to have some of the most beautiful prairie grasslands flowers in a landscape that is going to be stunning to the eye the first ingredient in your recipe is crp i mean yeah. it is the original it's the it's the og of <laughs> pollinator plots I, it is right i mean yeah. if you want if you care about like creating a, just this beautiful place to help honeybees and monarch butterflies that's also going to have benefits to all sorts of wildlife but that you are just going to enjoy the hell out of looking at mm-hmm. crp is a place to start absolutely no doubt more. about it mm-hmm. all right uh let's go to uh southwest nebraska andy what's your closing thought <laughs> you, you threw you uh, you kind of stole my thunder on my on the recipe. <laughs> Did I? You know, I, was I stepped about on this your part. touchdown call. <laughs> yeah, I was going like, man, I'm gonna bring up my baking a pie. We're only ever missing one ingredient. Ingredient CRP's the sugar, and and Bob brought it up before me. But no, you know, uh, it's it's exciting. You know, I I think the one thing I'd really like to you know hit on is is we are, you know, we're typically missing one ingredient. And a lot of times it is nesting cover, which, you know, and brood cover, which CRP does such a spectacular job of, of, uh, you know, creating. And, uh, you know, there's piles of opportunity of whether, you know, you have a large property or a small property, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to look at CRP, you know, the, the continuous, the general options that we've all talked about today. You know, I, I, I think it's important that, that we understand that, you know, there's a place for it everywhere on, on every farm and ranch, uh, in one way or the other. So with that, I'm going to, I'm going to leave Bob ruining my pie baking. So. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I stole the sugar in your final comment. <laughs> you, you still, you still delivered. Um, all right, let's, let's jump to, uh, to southwest minnesota and have nate nate what's your closing thought for minnesota my closing thought would be to um encourage landowners not to minimize the ecological potential of their small acreage um sure crp practices have size specifications and small acreage might not have a big ebi score in the general sign up but it's definitely worth exploring because those small or narrow CRP fields um, are just excellent travel corridors for wildlife. Hmm. And they do a great job at connecting our larger tracts of wildlife. 
habitat. So even if it's not a personal hunter's paradise in your backyard, it is still a huge benefit to uh, your local wildlife populations to have that CRP there. Right on. It's all important, right? I mean, it's the mosaic approach. It's not one single ingredient of Andy's pie, right? It, 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 all, it all works together to create something that's delicious for everybody. Yeah, great point. Great point. Uh, Rachel, closing thoughts. They're all yours. You get the mic drop. Oh, okay. Um, I guess my analogy being that I'm covered in too many inches of snow is I think, you know, everybody that's probably listening to this podcast has seen that graphic of the iceberg. You know, you've got mm. the, the visible part of the iceberg above the water surface, but then below it is this, you know, massive structure that we don't see. Um, I think that's kind of a good analogy for CRP in this podcast. We've talked, you know, we've just touched on, you know, a lot of things within CRP. And so if landowners are really interested in getting down into the details, you know, again, go to that find a biologist page on our website um, and connect with someone local because then you can really get into the details. But my mic drop is I just want everyone to remember that Bob said that CRP is the cat's I'm going to say meow. I'm pretty sure that's not. We'll say that CRP is cat's meow for private landowners and public bird hunters. It it really is. I mean, you know, I think about when I started with the organization, when I started working here, you know, 2003, I got my first, my own first bird dog as an adult in 07. And I, so that was Trammel. Um, and I couldn't have scripted it bit any better because, as you mentioned, that was the high point. I think you mentioned the high point for CRP in North Dakota. Well, that was the high point for CRP pretty much every darn state. And it was also what resulted in the high point in pheasant harvests in Minnesota, in North Dakota, in South Dakota. Um, it, you know, in Kansas, it was generational in terms of bird numbers. And that is exactly connected to the acres of CRP on the landscape. And yeah, as we've addressed, CRP is not perfect right now. Good thing is we're in a 2023 farm bill. So we can talk about with our elected officials ways to improve it. And key among it. You know, among the um, ways to improve is up in the ante on the soil rental rates. Um, CRP has to be an attractive conservation option for landowners to enroll in to make it a viable option for wildlife, right? But we as a public benefit from wildlife habitat, water quality, and soil that's created through CRP. So it's got to be paid for equitably for other options that landowners can can consider so so there's some things to tweak with the program but that's not a reason not to explore the program there's definitely shortcomings possible right now but as we mentioned throughout this conversation there's it's a mosaic approach it's a variety of approach where the general sign up might provide a great option for some acres there's all sorts of different cp 
practices in the continuous. And, you know, I mentioned like all the way up to CP42. That means there's 41 other CP practices that your land might up, um, might qualify for. There's state-driven programs that our biologists are, are knowledgeable about. There's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners programs that you might be qualified for. The point is, if you own property, it behooves you to talk to a biologist um, and find out some options because every landowner I've ever met likes their their land to be profitable but also be beneficial for wildlife, be good for the environment, and be beautiful from a, you know, I, I know so many people that take great pride in that pollinator plot. And it all starts with that that conversation here right now that's in front of us before April 7th. So I won't get any lo more long-winded. I'll tell you, please check out the website, pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org, slash CRP, and then go visit one of our biologists and uh, see what you might be able to do on your property. For Nate Four, for Brittany Byers, for Andy Hauser, and for Rachel Bush, thank you very much for spending this hour with me, for sharing your expertise. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>